Section 79 of the United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sebastian Levine. The World Story, Volume 13, The United States, edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 79. A Drummer Boy at Gettysburg, 1863. By Harry M. Kiefer. Harry, I'm getting tired of this thing. It's becoming monotonous, this thing of being roused every morning at four with orders to pack up and be ready to march at a moment's notice, and then lying around here all day in the sun. I don't believe we're going anywhere, anyhow. We had been encamped for six weeks, of which I need give no special account, only saying that in those summer quarters, as they might be called, we went on with our endless drilling, and were baked and browned and thoroughly hardened to the life of a soldier in the field. The monotony of which Andy complained did not end that day, nor the next. For six successive days we were regularly roused at four o'clock in the morning, with orders to pack up and be ready to move immediately, only to unpack as regularly about the middle of the afternoon. We could hear our batteries pounding away in the direction of Fredericksburg, but we did not then know that we were being held well in hand till the enemy's plan had developed itself into the great march into Pennsylvania, and we were led off in hot pursuit. So, at last, on the 12th of June, 1863, we started, at five o'clock in the morning, in a northwesterly direction. My journal says, very warm, dust plenty, water scarce, marching very hard. Halted at dusk at an excellent spring, and lay down for the night with aching limbs and blistered feet. I pass over the six days' continuous marching that followed, steadily on toward the north, pausing only to relate several incidents that happened by the way. On the fourteenth we were racing with the enemy, we being pushed on to the utmost of human endurance, for the possession of the defenses of Washington. From five o'clock of that morning till three the following morning, that is to say, from daylight to daylight, we were hurried along under a burning June sun, with no halt longer than sufficient to recruit our strength with a hasty cup of coffee at noon and nightfall, nine, ten, eleven, twelve o'clock at night, and still on. It was almost more than flesh could endure. Men fell out of line in the darkness for the score, and tumbled over by the roadside, asleep almost before they touched the ground. I remember how a great tall fellow in our company made us laugh along somewhere about one o'clock that morning. Pointer, we called him an excellent soldier, who afterward fell at his post at Spotsylvania. He had been trudging on in sullen silence for hours, when, all of a sudden, coming to a halt, he brought his piece to order arms on the hard road of the ring, took off his cap, and, in language far more forcible than elegant, began forthwith to denounce both parties to the war, from A to Izzard, in all branches of the service, civil and military, army and navy, artillery, infantry, and cavalry, and demanded that the enemy should come on in full force here and now, and I'll fight them all, single-handed and alone, the whole pack of them. I'm tired of this everlasting marching, and I want to fight. Three cheers for Pointer!' cried someone, and we laughed heartily as we toiled doggedly on to Manassas, which we reached at 3 a.m. June 15th. I can assure you, we lost no time in stretching ourselves at full length in the tall summer grass. "'James McFadden, report to the adjutant for Camp Guard. James McFadden! Anybody know where Jim McFadden is?' Now that was rather hard, wasn't it? to march from daylight to daylight, and lie down for a rest of probably two hours before starting again, and then to be called up to stand throughout those precious two hours on guard duty. I knew very well where McFadden was, for wasn't he lying right beside me in the grass? But just then I was in no humor to tell. The camp might well go without a guard that night, or the orderly might find McFadden in the dark if he could. But the rules were strict, and the punishment was severe, and poor McFadden, bursting into tears of vexation, answered like a man, "'Here I am, orderly, I'll go.' It was hard. Two weeks later, both McFadden and the orderly went where there is neither marching nor standing guard any more. 
Now comes a long rest of a week in the woods near the Potomac, for we have been marching parallel with the enemy and dare not go too fast, lest, by some sudden and dexterous move in the game, he should sweep past our rear and upon the defenses of Washington. And after this sweet refreshment, we cross the Potomac on pontoons, and march, perhaps with a lighter step since we are nearing home, through the smiling fields and pleasant villages of Maryland, my Maryland. At Poolsville, a little town on the north bank of the Potomac, we smile as we see a lot of children come trooping out of the village school, a merry sight to men who have seen neither woman nor child these six months and more, and a touching sight to many a man in the ranks as he thinks of his little flaxen heads in the faraway home. I think of them now, and think of them full tenderly, too, for many a man of you shall never have child climb on his knee any more. As we enter one of those pleasant little Maryland villages, Jefferson by name, we find on the outskirts of the place two young ladies and two young gentlemen, waving the good old flag as we pass, and singing, Rally round the flag, boys! The excitement along the line is intense. Cheer on cheer is given, by regiment after regiment. As we pass along, we drummer boys beating at the colonel's express orders, the old tune, The Girl I Left Behind Me, as a sort of response. Soon we are in among the hills again, and still the cheering goes on in the far distance to the rear. Only ten days later, we passed through the same village again, and were met by the same young ladies and gentlemen, waving the same flag and singing the same song. But though we tried twice, and tried hard, we could not cheer at all. For there's a difference between five hundred men and one hundred, is there not? So that second time, we drooped our tattered flags, and raised our caps in silent and sorrowful salute. Through Middletown next, where rumor reaches us that the enemy's forces have occupied Harrisburg, and where certain ladies, standing on a balcony and waving their handkerchiefs as we pass by, in reply to our colonel's greeting, that we are glad to see so many Union people here, answer, yes, and we are glad to see the Yankee soldiers, too. From Middletown, at six o'clock in the evening, across the mountain to Frederick, on the outskirts of which city we camp for the night. At half-past five next morning, June twenty-ninth, we are up and away, in a drizzling rain, through Lewistown and Mechanicstown, near which latter place we pass a company of Confederate prisoners, twenty-four in number, dressed in well-worn gray and butternut, which makes us think that the enemy cannot be far ahead. After a hard march of twenty-five miles, the greater part of the way over a turnpike, we reach Emmitsburg at nightfall, some of us quite barefoot, and all of us footsore and weary. Next morning, June 30th, at nine o'clock, we were up and away again, on the road leading towards Gettysburg, they say. After crossing the line between Maryland and Pennsylvania, where the colonel halts the column for a moment, in order that we may give three rousing cheers for the old Keystone State, we march perceptibly slower, as if there were some impediment in the way. There is a feeling among the men that the enemy is somewhere near. Toward noon we leave the public road, and taking across the fields, form in line of battle along the rear of a wood, and pickets are thrown out. There is an air of uncertainty and suspicion in the ranks as we look to the woods, and consider what our pickets may possibly unmask there. But no developments have yet been made when darkness comes, and we bivouac for the night behind a strong stone wall. Passing down along the line of glowing fires, in the gathering gloom, I come on one of my company messes, squatting about a fire, cooking supper. Joe Gutelius, corporal and color guard from our company, is superintending the boiling of a piece of meat in a tin can, while Sam Rule and his brother Joe are smoking their pipes nearby. Boys, it begins to look a little dubious, don't it? Where is Jimmy Lucas? He's out on picket in the woods yonder. Yes, Harry, it begins to look a little as if we were about to stir the Johnnies out of the brush, says Joe Gutelius, throwing another rail in the fire. If we do, says Joe Rule, remember that you have the post of honor, Joe, and if any man pulls down that flag, shoot him on the spot. Never you fear for that, answers Joe Gutelius. We of the color guard will look out for the flag. For my part, I'll stay a dead man on the field before the colors of the 150th are disgraced. 
You'll have some tough tussling for your colors, then, says Sam. If the Louisiana Tigers get after you once, look out. Who's afraid of the Louisiana Tigers? I'll back the bucktails against the Tigers any day. Stay and take supper with us, Harry. We're going to have a feast tonight. I have the heart of a beef boiling in the can yonder, and it is done now. Sit up, boys. Get out your knives and fall to. We're going to have a boiled lion heart for supper, Harry, says Joe Rule with mock apology for the fare. But we couldn't catch any lions. They seem to be scarce in these parts. Maybe we can catch a tiger tomorrow, though. Little do we think, as we sit thus cheerily talking about the blazing fire behind the stone wall, that it is our last supper together, and that ere another nightfall, two of us will be sleeping in the silent bivouac of the dead. Colonel, close up your men and move on as rapidly as possible. It is the morning of July 1st, and we are crossing a bridge over a stream, as the staff officer, having delivered this order for us, dashes down the line to hurry up the regiments in the rear. We get up on a high range of hills, from which we have a magnificent view. The day is bright, the air is fresh and sweet with the scent of the new mown hay, and the sun shines out of an almost cloudless sky, and as we gaze away off yonder down the valley to the left, look, do you see that? A puff of smoke in mid-air, very small and miles away, as the faint and long-coming boom of the exploding shell indicates, but it means that something is going on yonder, away down in the valley, in which, perhaps, we may have a hand before the day is done. See? Another! And another! Faint and far away comes the long-delayed boom, boom, echoing over the hills, as a staff officer dashes along the lines with orders to double-quick, double-quick. Four miles of almost constant double-quicking is no light work at any time, least of all on such a day as this memorable first day of July, for it is hot and dusty. But we are in our own state now, boys, and the battle is opening ahead, and it is no time to save breath. On we go, now up a hill, now over a stream, now checking our headlong rush for a moment, for we must breathe little. But the word comes along the line again, double-quick and we settle down to it with right good will, while the cannon ahead seems to be getting nearer and louder. There is little said in the ranks, for there is little breath for talking, though every man is busy enough thinking. We all feel, somehow, that our day has come at last, as indeed it has. We get in through the outskirts of Gettysburg, tying down fences of the town lots and outlying gardens as we go. We pass a battery of brass guns drawn up beside the seminary, some hundred yards in front of which building, in a strip of meadow land, we halt, and rapidly form the line of battle. General, shall we unsling knapsacks? shouts some one down the line to our division general, as he is dashing by. Never mind the knapsacks, boys, it's the state now. And he plunges his spurs into the flanks of his horse, as he takes the stake and rider fence at a leap, and it is away. Unfurl the flags, color guard. Now forward, double. Colonel, we're not loaded yet. A laugh rungs along the line as, at the command, load at will, load. The ramrods make their merry music, and at once the word is given. Forward, double quick. And the line sweeps up that rising ground with banners gaily flying, and cheers that run the air. A sight, once seen. Never to be forgotten. I suppose my readers wonder what a drummer boy does in time of battle. Perhaps they have the same idea I used to have, namely, that it is the duty of a drummer boy to beat his drum all the time the battle rages, to encourage the men or drown the groans of the wounded. But if they will reflect a moment, they will see that amid the confusion and noise of battle, there is little chance of martial music being either heard or heeded. Our colonel had long ago given us our orders. You drummer boys, in time of an engagement, are to lay aside your drums and take stretchers and help off the wounded. I expect you to do this, and you are to remember that, in doing it, you are just as much helping the battle along as if you were fighting with guns in your hands. And so we sit down there on our drums and watch the line going in with cheers. Forthwith we get a smart shelling, for there is evidently somebody else watching that advancing line besides ourselves, but they have elevated their guns a little too much, so that every shell passes quite over the line and plows up the meadow sod about us in all directions. Laying aside our knapsacks, we go into the seminary, now rapidly filling with the wounded, this the enemy surely cannot know, or they wouldn't shell the building so hard. 
We get stretchers at the ambulances and start out for the line of battle. We can just see our regimental colors waving in the orchard, near a log house about three hundred yards ahead, and we start out for it, I in the lead and Danny behind. There is one of our batteries drawn up to our left a short distance as we run. It is engaged in a sharp artillery duel with one of the enemies, which we cannot see, although we can hear it plainly enough, and straight between the two our road lies. So up we go, Danny and I at a lively trot, dodging the shells as best we can, till, panting for breath, we set down our stretcher under an apple tree in the orchard, in which, under the brow of the hill, we find the regiment lying, one or two companies being out on the skirmish line ahead. I count six men of Company C lying yonder in the grass, killed, they say, by a single shell. Close beside them lies a tall, magnificently built man, whom I recognize by his uniform as belonging to the Iron Brigade, and therefore probably an Iowa boy. He lies on his back at full length, with his musket beside him, calm-looking as if asleep, but having a fatal blue mark on his forehead, and the ashen pallor of death on his countenance. Andy calls me away for a moment to look after some poor fellow whose arm is off at the shoulder, and it was just time I got away, too, for immediately a shell plunges into the sod where I had been sitting, tearing my structure to tatters, and plowing up a great furrow under one of the boys who had been sitting immediately behind me, and who thinks, that was rather close chaving, wasn't it now? The bullets whistling overhead make pretty music with their ever-varying zip, zip, and we can imagine them so many bees, only they have such a terribly sharp sting. They tell me, too, of a certain cavalryman, Dennis Buckley, 6th Michigan Cavalry it was, as I afterward learned, let history preserve the brave boy's name, who, having had his horse shot under him, and seeing that first-named shell explode in Company C with such disaster, exclaimed, That is the company for me! He remained with the regiment all day, doing good service with his carbine, and he escaped unhurt. Here they come, boys. We'll have to go and add them on a charge, I guess. Creeping close around the corner of the log-house, I can see the long lines of grey sweeping up in fine style over the fields, but I feel the colonel's hand on my shoulder. Keep back, my boy. No use exposing yourself in that way. As I get back behind the house and look around, an old man is seen approaching our line through the orchard in the rear. He is dressed in a long blue swallow-tailed coat and high silk hat. Coming up to the colonel, he asks, "'Would you let an old chap like me have a chance to fight in your ranks, colonel?' "'Can you shoot?' inquires the colonel. "'Oh, yes, I can shoot, I reckon,' says he. "'But where are your cartridges?' "'I've got them here, sir,' says the old man, slapping his hand on his trousers pocket. And so old John Burns, of whom every schoolboy has heard, takes his place in the line, and loads and fires with the best of them, and is left wounded and insensible on the field when the day is done. Reclining there under a tree while the skirmishing is going on in front, and the shells are tearing up the sod around us, I observe how evidently hard-pressed is that battery yonder in the edge of the wood about fifty yards to our right. The enemy's batteries have excellent range on the poor fellows serving it, and when the smoke lifts or rolls away in great clouds, for a moment we can see the men running, and ramming, and sighting and firing, and swabbing, and changing position every few minutes, to throw the enemy's guns out of range a little. The men are becoming terribly few, but nevertheless their guns, with a rapidity that seems unabated, belch forth great clouds of smoke, and send the shells shrieking over the plain. Meanwhile, events occur which give us something more to think of than mere skirmishing and shelling. Our beloved Brigadier General, Roy Stone, stepping out a moment to reconnoiter the enemy's position and movements, is seen by some sharpshooter off in a tree, and is carried severely wounded into the barn. Our Colonel, Langhorn Wister, assumes command of the brigade. Our regiment, facing westward, while the line on our right faces to the north, is observed to be exposed to an enfilading fire from the enemy's guns, as well as from the long line of grey now appearing in full sight on our right. So our regiment must form in line and charge front forward, in order to come in line with the other regiments. Accomplished swiftly, this new movement brings our line at once face to face with the enemy's, which advances to within fifty yards, and exchanges a few volleys, 
but is soon checked and staggered by our fire. Yet now, see, away to our left, and consequently on our flank, a new line appears, rapidly advancing out of the woods a half-mile away. And there must be some quick and sharp work done now, boys, or between the old foes in front and the new ones on our flank we shall be annihilated. To clear us of these old assailants in front before the new line can swoop down on our flank, our brave colonel, in a ringing command, orders a charge along the whole line. Then, before the gleaming and bristling bayonets of our bucktail brigade as it yells and cheers, sweeping resistlessly over the field, the enemy gives way and flies in confusion. But there is little time to watch them fly, for that new line on our left is approaching at a rapid pace, and, with shells falling thick and fast into our ranks, and men dropping everywhere, a regiment must reverse the former movement by changing front to rear, and so resume its original position, facing westward, for the enemy's new line is approaching from that direction, and if it takes us in the flank, we are done for. To change front to rear is a difficult movement to execute even on drill, much more so under severe fire, but it is executed now, steadily and without confusion, yet not a minute too soon, for the new line of grey is upon us in a mad tempest of lead, supported by a cruel artillery fire almost before our line can steady itself to receive the shock. However, partially protected by a post and rail fence, we answer fiercely, and with effect so terrific that the enemy's line wavers, and at length moves off by the right flank, giving us a breathing space for a time. During this struggle, there had been many an exciting scene all along the line, as it swayed backward and forward over the field, scenes which we have had no time to mention yet. See yonder, where the colors of the regiment on our right, our sister regiment, the 149th, have been advanced a little, to draw the enemy's fire, while our line sweeps on to the charge. There ensues about the flags a wild melee and close hand-to-hand -hand encounter. Some of the enemy have seized the colors, and are making off with them in triumph, shouting victory. But a squad of our own regiment dashes out swiftly led to the rescue of the stolen colors by Sergeant John C. Kensill, of Company F, who falls to the ground before reaching them, and amid yells and cheers and smoke you see the battle flags rise and fall, and sway hither and thither upon the surging mass, as if tossed on the billows of a tempest, until wretched away by strong arms, they are borne back in triumph to the line of the 149th. See yonder again! Our colonel is clapping his hand to his cheek, from which a red stream is pouring. Our lieutenant colonel, Henry S. Hood Coper, is kneeling on the ground, and is having his handkerchief tied around his arm at the shoulder. Major Thomas Chamberlain and Adjutant Richard L. Ashurst both lie low, pierced with balls through the chest. One lieutenant is waving his sword to his men, although his leg is crushed at the knee. Three other officers of the line are laying over there, motionless now, forever. All over the field are strewn men, wounded or dead, and comrades pause a moment in the mad rush to catch the last words of the dying. Incidents such as these the reader must imagine for himself, to fill in these swift sketches of how the day was won, and lost. I lost, for the balls, which have so far come mainly from our front, begin now to sing in from our left and right, which means that we are being flanked. Somehow, away off to our right, a half-mile or so, our line has given way, and is already on retreat through the town, while our left is being driven in, and we ourselves may shortly be surrounded and crushed, and so the retreat is sounded. Back now along the railroad cut we go, or through the orchard in the narrow strip of woods behind it, with our dead scattered around on all sides, and the wounded crying piteously for help. Harry! Harry! It is a faint cry of a dying man yonder in the grass, and I must see who it is. Why, Willie! Tell me where you are hurt, I ask, kneeling down beside him. And I see the words come hard, for he is fast dying. Here my side, Harry. Tell... Mother... Mother... Poor fellow, he can say no more. His head falls back and Willie is at rest forever. Ah, now, through that strip of woods, at the other edge of which, with my back against a stout oak, I stop and look at a beautiful and thrilling sight.
Some reserves are being brought up, infantry in the centre, the colours flying and officers shouting cavalry on the right, with sabres flashing and horses on a trot, artillery on the left, with guns at full gallop sweeping into position to check the headlong pursuit. It is a grand sight and a fine rally, but a vain one. For in an hour we are swept off the field, and are in full retreat through the town. Up through the streets hurries the remnant of our shattered corps, while the enemy is pouring into the town only a few squares away from us. There is a tempest of shrieking shells and whistling balls about our ears. The guns of that battery by the woods we have dragged along, all the horses being disabled. The artillerymen load as we go, double-charging with grape and canister. Make way there, men, is the cry, and the surging mass crowds close up on the sidewalks to right and left, leaving a long lane down the centre of the street through which the grape and canister go rattling into the ranks of the enemy's advance guard. And so, amid scenes which I have neither space nor power to describe, we gain Cemetery Ridge toward sunset, and throw ourselves down by the road in a tumult of excitement and grief, having lost the day through the overwhelming force of numbers, and yet somehow having gained it, too, although, as yet we know it had not, for the sacrifice of our corps has saved the position for the rest of the army, which has been marching all day and which comes pouring in over Cemetery Ridge all night long. Aye, the position is saved, but where is our corps? Well may our division general, Doubleday, who early in the day succeeded to the command, when our brave Reynolds had fallen, shed tears of grief as he sits there on his horse and looks over the shattered remains of that first army corps, for there is but a handful of it left. Of the five hundred and fifty men that marched under our regimental colors in the morning, but one hundred remain. All our field and staff officers are gone. Of some twenty captains and lieutenants, but one is left without a scratch, while of my own company, only thirteen out of fifty-four sleep that night on Cemetery Ridge under the open canopy of heaven. There is no roll call, for Sergeant Wayne Saul will call the roll no more. Nor will Joe Gutelius, nor Joe Rule, nor McFadden, nor Henning, nor many others of our comrades whom we miss, ever answer to their names again, until the world's last great reveille. End of section 79. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sebastian Levine.